Hello, you are listening to Germantown Community Radio, WRGU 92.9 FM. Welcome to the Jumpstart Philly Real Estate Radio Show, a weekly radio program that spotlights positive real estate development and neighborhood revitalization throughout Philadelphia. I'm your host, Derek Hengemill. Jumpstart Philly is a unique community development program that trains, mentors, networks, and provides funding to aspiring real estate developers in seven different Philadelphia neighborhoods, including Germantown, where the program was founded. Jumpstart believes that you can do well by doing good and focuses on removing neighborhood blight, scattered site rehab, creating a healthy mix of affordable and market rate housing, and avoiding gentrification through slow, steady growth and keeping wealth local. Interviews are conducted during Jumpstart Germantown's weekly Jumpinar series on Monday nights at 7 p.m. held via Zoom webinar. For more information about these events, check out the events page at jumpstartgermantown.com. This week, I am speaking with Jen Tintenfass and Layla Vaughn from Royer Cooper Cohen Braunfield LLC about opportunity zones and how they can impact the community and benefit small developers. I hope you enjoy the conversation and be sure to check out the podcast version of this program at jumpstartgermantown.com media. Jennifer is a real estate and finance lawyer at Royer Cooper Cohen Braunfield LLC, and she is an experienced in representing owners, buyers, sellers in a wide variety of real estate transactions, including ground up developments, sale leasebacks, financing, refinances, and workouts. She often serves as a outside counsel to commercial banks and private equity lenders. She excels in finding creative solutions in it to real estate and business related issues and has been recognized as a rising star by Pennsylvania super lawyers. Layla Vaughn, who is our second guest, this is our, I think our first one that we've had two people. Um, she is a business and tax nonprofit attorney at Royer Cooper Cohen Braunfield LLC, same as Jen. <laughs> she has extensive experience structuring qualified opportunity zone projects for real estate clients and has contributed significantly to the American Bar Association's comments on the QAZ program and has been a panelist on its continuing legal education panel on the subject. So um, just a quick disclaimer before we jump into the conversation, this presentation is for educational purposes only um, and for your general information and should not be relied upon for legal advice. So participation in this program does not create an attorney-client relationship unless you want it to, I guess, <laughs> um, later down the line. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, there's, like I said, a ton to, to get into, um, but I think that the best way is to just say hi to you guys and, and maybe you guys can talk a little about what, what OZRs um, OZs are from the from the get-go and, and how they came about. Sure. Um, hi, everyone. I'm Jen Tintenfass, uh, along with my colleague Layla Vaughn. We're both very excited to be able to um, be a part of these Jump in Our series. Mm-hmm. So qualified opportunity zones have become sort of a common conversation in real estate development across the country. Um, they actually came out of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act in 2017. And the act itself, um, and specifically the regulations around QOZs, were created as a bipartisan approach to incentive investment and bringing back sort of economic investment into disinvested and disenfranchised neighborhoods and communities across the country. Um, it was actually spearheaded specifically for the focus on distressed communities and those investments by Tim Scott, Cory Booker, and Ron Kind. So it was seen as sort of an exciting opportunity to reach across the aisle and work together. And uh, what it did was it um, took the opportunity to create and take a pool of data, which identified specific tracks and census designated tracks across the country to focus in on real estate and other types of investment through this program. Um, And what it focused on specifically was um, different ways in which individuals could um, take capital gain and invest them to gain additional benefit and protection from the full extent of the capital gain. So Jen, has it has has the legislation surrounding OZs like grown and developed since it, it first came into to play or or has it kind of remained stagnant since then? I'll actually defer to Layla to talk on that. <laughs> okay. So the legislation itself um, has not changed. Um, you know, there's been speculation as to whether it should change or will change. But the legislation has remained the same. What has changed is we've received a significant amount of guidance um, under the legislation. So we, we've gotten very large regulation packages mm-hmm. um, telling us how to uh, apply these rules. And um, it's, at its heart, it is a tax 
programs. So it's very complex. There are a lot of nuances. It's um, uh, maybe mess isn't the right word to use, but it's really, it's really quite uh, difficult and complicated. Uh, sure. So unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that, that, I mean, that's why we're doing things like this to kind of hopefully clear some of the air there. Um, so, so, I mean, Jen said that, that opportunity zones, you know, are aimed at relieving distressed communities and, and focused on like influencing a geographical area. What ways does it do that? You know, like what are the benefits of, of employing an OZ in a certain area? Well, so in, in theory, uh, we'll, we'll say at least, it requires you to put a significant amount of capital into these areas. Um, you know, I, I don't know how technical we want to get from the first 10 minutes of talking. I don't want to overwhelm or scare anyone off too quickly, but there is a concept of requiring um, requiring a qualified opportunity fund or business to acquire either original use property, so new property in the zone, so that might be new construction, or to substantially improve existing property. Mm-hmm. And that requires um, uh, dub- doubling your basis, which effectively means approximately uh, spending as much on improvements as you did on purchasing the building, if there's an existing building in, in your on your property. So the idea is if, if it were a blighted area, which you know, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Um, you're, you're, you know, revitalizing it. Mm-hmm. In what ways? Like, like who's revitalizing it? The developer is, is doing what to, you know, like, like I, what was the process of like an actual, see, we're, we're only 10 minutes in and we're already kind of getting like loosey goosey with the, the um, yeah. security of this. But do you know what I'm trying to ask is like, like where is the, the actual mechanic of an OZ is it's through tax breaks to an investor or, or. What oh, would- sure. So yeah, it's the, the benefits of investing in an opportunity fund. If you are, if you are the investor mm-hmm. are you have initial gain from something else, some unrelated project, or, you know, even from some stock market gains that maybe you had, right. um, you reinvested into this project that you've, decided on whether it's just you and maybe your family members or you're investing with other people, mm-hmm. you get to defer that gain until 2026, assuming you keep your project that long. Mm-hmm. In addition, you get to reduce the gain through a step up in basis. Um, so 10% of your gain will be effectively forgiven mm-hmm. um, after you've held it for five years. And then after you've held the project for at least 10 years, when you sell or otherwise dispose of the project, mm-hmm. um, you'll get to exclude the new gain that is, you know, the appreciation and um, any other gain that you would have maybe recaptured from depreciation you took in this new investment. So you're never getting rid of your original gain that you're going to end up having to pay tax on that in 2026 at the very latest. Mm-hmm. Um what you are getting and the the benefit that people are most excited about is this new project that that hopefully they're investing in an area that's up and coming or you know will be maybe even because of the opportunity zone legislation at least so likes to think the people who put it together um so now you've got this great appreciated property 10 years later you don't have to pay any tax on that disposition Right. So those advantages you just described are, are focused on motivating people to invest in a specific geographic area, right? A lot of specific geographic areas. I forget how many zones were designated. But, right. um, I can actually share. There, yeah. So there are 8,762 census tracts in the 50 states. And in 2018, they added two additional census tracts in Puerto Rico. Um, but... <laughs> So Layla just started sharing her screen with a, a map that um, is, is just of the greater Philadelphia area. And the and you can go on ahead and describe this it. This is actually just Philadelphia proper, I believe. Yeah. Um, yeah. So like if, if you go outside of Philadelphia to the west, it's like in Montgomery County, I think Norristown is the only area. But there, in Philadelphia, there are a lot of opportunity zones. Some of them are in areas you would think of as maybe a little bit blighted, and some of them are in areas that you would think of as, well, that property there is already really expensive. Um, 
Jen, you want to talk about why that is? Sure. Um, so just for a couple um, data points here in Pennsylvania, there's 300 census tracts for QOZs in the Commonwealth. Um, and just if you're curious, 289 of them are low-income tracts and 11 of, of them are non-low-income tracts. Um, and 88% of them are deemed urban, 12% uh, are deemed rural. Here in Philly, we actually have 82 opportunity zones. So that sort of map should give you a, a, an idea of how many census tracts are deemed to be OZs. Um, and that makes up 27% of what's available for OZs in Pennsylvania. Um, the, what's interesting about the, the census tracts that Layla was touching on is that um, when the program was being put together in connection with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act in 2017, um, Congress used data that was st compiled starting in the year 2011 up until 2015 based on the American Community Survey. It's like census data. And um, by, you know, so much has happened since 2011. Um, we've been generally in an up market this entire time and investments have only increased both in real estate and otherwise. So the market is high. Um, the cost of real estate has increased as well. Uh, and so a lot of these uh, areas, which were deemed to be census tracts for the purposes of the qualified opportunity zone, don't really look like the communities that the, the act really was targeting um, for direct investment. And as example, um, there are areas in Northern Liberties, there's area all across West Philly University City around Penn and Drexel, um, areas along Broad Street North going up towards Temples University. So some communities which had seen, you know, great imp um, you know, investment and improvement over the last 10 years are getting an additional boost um, based on these QOZs. Sure. So, so oh, I just wanted to ask, like, this map and the way those, those blue uh, shaded lines are drawn, like, they haven't changed since 2010. Is that what you're saying? Or, or, or the, the blue shaded areas are the zones that the governor designated. So each state governor got to designate zones based on the, you know, what the federal government set forth as the low income and low income adjacent tracts that were right. eligible to be. Right. And so th these in blue are what were selected in 2018. So you had two rounds. There were, you know, a bunch of states that selected in the spring and the rest uh, selected in the summer. And once they're selected, that's that's it. Um, so, it so it's the, the census data that they're using to, to determine the financials is what's changing, not necessarily the actual boundaries of the OZs, right? Right. There's, there's no changing the boundaries of the OZs unless and until there's legislation effectively renewing the program. Um, and then presumably they would use the more current data that they cool. would have by then. Um, but, it, you know, one thing I wanted to layer onto what Jen was explaining ab about the um, amount of time that has passed since the, that the original data was collected is that you also have governors, as I mentioned, who are selecting zones and their incentive was to bring in as much revenue or as, you know, as much investment into their states. So they're picking the most, a, a lot of the times they're picking the areas not that need it the most, but that they're are most likely to actually interest investors. So that has a tendency to, you know, look to what's already been somewhat or, you know, maybe even fully uh, developed um, right. with price increases and, you know. Right. Um Cool. And before we move on, I just see, I see some questions coming in and I want to remind everybody that right around 7.45 or just after then, um, when we finish up, we will be doing a live Q&A. So um, feel free to submit your questions while we're talking or you can save them to the end, but um, we will do that at uh, once we're wrapped up. And you can do that by using the Q&A tab on the bottom of your Zoom toolbar. Um, cool. So thank you for, for sharing that map, Layla. Um, and like now we kind of know what they are and where they are. Maybe we can talk about who qualifies for them and, and who actually is eligible to, to utilize the, the benefits that they, they provide. Well, so Jen had mentioned, I, th I think earlier that you have to have, you have to have capital gain to invest in this. So mm -hmm. what that means is people who don't have capital gain aren't going to be able to get any tax benefits from this whatsoever. And so, I think you mentioned one example of that, like stock market capital gains, like that's something that people could sure. really rest. It, it could, what, what it could be stock market gains. What? 
what are some other examples of the capital gains that, that people frequently? It could um, be gain from your sale of a business. It could be gain from a sale of other real estate, as long as you held it as a capital asset and not as inventory. Um, you know, really if anything that your accountant is classifying as capital gains uh, is cool. Um, or in the you know, in in the case of the sale of a business, technically it's um, business gains that gets recharacterized if it's gain as capital. Um, it's it's a little bit different than ordinary capital gains. I shouldn't okay. use the word ordinary in the context of capital gains, but then regular capital gains. Right. Um, so, you know, we call those section 1231 gains and that really relates to, you, you know, you sold the assets of your business. Any of that eligible, um, what you also might have is a context where you don't have any gains, but you could benefit from it indirectly by bringing in an investor who does. Right. And is that the only qualifier? It's just if you have capital gains, you're, you're good to go. Is there any other sort of experience you need or, or? So you have to have capital gains. Sure. You have to reinvest them into a qualified opportunity fund within 180 days of your generally your recognition of that gain. Um, there are some, if you've held that gain through a pass through entity, like a partnership or an S corporation, mm -hmm. there are some opportunities to um, delay when that 180 days starts running. So if, you know, let's say you invested in a fund and you don't know that fund has gains until the end of the year, or even when you get your, your uh, K-1s, you could get a, that pushed back to, so that the 180 days starts as late as uh, March 15th of mm -hmm. the year. Mm -hmm. um, and there've also been some COVID relief extensions. Um, so that gain that was recognized from April 1st through the, through March 30th can, can be treated as recognized on March 30th for, for accounting. Gotcha. So it sounds like the, the, the two major things people should be looking for in their own experiences, A, they're ready to invest within that, that time period that you just said, and then B, they have capital gains that they're able to redirect, right? Yeah. And, you know, technically you don't have to get your money into the project itself within those 180 days. Oh. You have to get it into a fund, which you're presumably, if, if you're, doing this independently. Gotcha. Put it in a fund and then your fund in turn gets some time to find a project to invest in. So you can, you can end up drawing it out a bit, um, a bit longer. Cool. Um, so, so we'll talk a, a little bit in, or we're talking a little bit about um, how smaller investors and people that are more on the scale of the, the callers in this, um, this Zoom meeting will be able to utilize it. But before we get to that, I want to talk about the actual like implementation of the quality zone or OZ um, investment and like how would one make an OZ investment? I think you have a slide to share. Um, yeah, I am going to that slide. I can give sort of a, a, a yeah. first layer foundational explanation. Um, the regulations have provided um, that the structure needs to be at its core a disregarded entity with at least two members. Um, uh, you don't mean a disregarded entity, you mean okay. a, a partnership? partnership, not disregarded entity, with at least two members. Um, so that means that if you're going to form an LLC to do an investment like this, a qualified opportunity fund, it can't just be you, it has to be you and someone else. Um, and, uh, you know, most often, we're forming these as LLCs, um, usually in their native to the state, or most often to the state where there are properties that they're investing in have been located. Mm -hmm. um, but we are finding that more frequently there's a two-tier structure, which Layla will explain um, using this sort of graphic. Yeah. So um, this is our standard structure. You've got, uh, I'll just describe it um, for anyone who's not able to see the image. You have a qualified opportunity fund that has, as Jen mentioned, um, at least two investors. Now, typically what I'm, you know, if you have one person, when I have one client who wants to invest and they don't really want anybody else involved, maybe they have a trust or a spouse or other family member and that person will get a 1% interest and, and the main investor will take a 99% interest um, just to facilitate it not being a disregarded entity. For whatever reason, the code requires that the qualified opportunity fund be for tax purposes, either a partnership or a corporation. An LLC that has one member is disregarded, so it, it cannot work. An LLC that has 
two or more members as a partnership. If somebody really doesn't want anybody else involved at all, we can actually also, you know, I'm looking at this chart and I've got A and B as the two investors. B could be an S corporation that A owns because an S corporation is treated as a separate entity. We would, in real, the real estate context, we would not make this qualified opportunity fund an S corporation because we don't put real estate in S corporations. Um, when you have a 1% interest, it's not as big of a deal. Um, in Outside of the real estate context, we could use an S corporation and have just a sole member of it and have that work. So Layla, let me stop you there real quick. Um, sure. It's a great diagram. And I think um, like breaking it down in simplest terms could even help. What is the difference between that top triangle, the bottom trial, a quality opportunity, qualified yeah. opportunities fund, right? And then a zone on the bottom. So, yep, I'm getting there. Okay, cool. <laughs> so, so you've got your top tier structure of investors in the fund. Underneath that, you have the fund investing in a qualified opportunity zone business. Mm -hmm. Just like with the fund, the qualified opportunity zone business has to have a second member so that it is not disregarded. When I say a disregarded entity, that's a, an entity that is a legal entity, but for tax purposes, we ignore it. So if, you, if you've ever owned real estate through a single member LLC and treated it as if you owned it directly, that's because it's disregarded. Um, so here I've put A back in as having a direct 1% interest while the Qualified Opportunity Fund has a 99% interest in this Qualified Opportunity Zone business. Mm -hmm. Reason for it is not just to create extra work for the lawyers, but the regulations, because so the there are inconsistencies in the code. The way different um, rules are described uh, end up with kind of a, a wild and very unusual set of rules. Um, Treasury and the IRS did the best they could to make something that was workable within what Congress gave them. Mm -hmm. So a qualified opportunity zone business, unfortunately has a different set of rules that allow it more flexibility than a qualified opportunity fund would have. I say unfortunately, because I would rather have a simpler structure. It would make it easier for everybody. Um, but the Qualified Opportunity Zone business structure enables the Qualified Opportunity Zone project to have more cash available on hand. And I'll walk through what these, what the reasons are for that by, by going back a step and explaining what these tests are that the investor has to meet or that the fund has to meet. So a Qualified Opportunity Fund has to have 90% of its investments in qualified opportunity zone property. Just to make it easy, I'll call that good property. Cash counts against you. And that's kind of absurd because how are you going to substantially improve property? You have to spend as much money improving your property as you did buying it, but you can't have the cash in your entity to do it. That's like, a, that's setting you up for failure. Um, there are some rules about you know, allowing you reasonable cause if you don't meet the test, but nobody wants to go into a project relying on the IRS's mercy. That's just not a good way to, to plan for it. Mm -hmm. One thing, so, so if the project itself were held by the Qualified Opportunity Fund, it, it could maybe be Qualified Opportunity Zone property, but Qualified Opportunity Zone partnership interests and Qualified Opportunity Zone stock, but we're in real estate, so we're not talking about stock. Qualified Opportunity Zone partnership interests are also good property. So if the Qualified Opportunity Fund puts at least 90% of that cash that A and B contributed into a partnership that we call a Qualified Opportunity Zone business, then its assets are good assets. Or it can, you know, it can hold back 10%. Um, then the Qualified Opportunity Zone business has its own set of tests that it has to meet. So it has to have an active trader business, which um, means you're not going to be able to have triple net leases. Um, so that can be an issue for commercial and industrial properties. It's less of an issue for residential. Jen, you can jump in and correct me if I got that wrong. Um, it 
has to, I mean, there's some intellectual property rules that are not typically going to apply to a real estate business. Um, it has to then substantially improve its property or acquire original use property. And at least 70% of its assets have to be good assets. So I described 90% test at the qualified opportunity fund level. Now we're at 70% of the tangible assets have to be good assets. What about cash? So the qualified opportunity zone business can't have more than 5% of its assets in cash or other non-qualified financial property, except for working capital. So now we're like, well, what is working capital? That seems like a really important word. The regulations have a safe harbor for a 31-month startup period that the qualified opportunity zone business can meet. And if you meet the tests, it means you have to put the the plans for the project in writing with budgets and timing and, and show the IRS that you mean it, you have to follow it. Um, it has to be done within 31 months. Then you can rest comfortably knowing that you have met not only the test about the cash not hurting you, but also every other test that you had to meet during that time period is effectively waived or it's deemed to be met because the qualified opportunity zone meets this magical safe harbor. And so you can't take advantage of that safe harbor if you just have a one-tier structure. So that's why we almost always use this two-tier structure. If you're just tuning in, this is a conversation with Jen Tintinfass and Layla Vaughn from Royer Cooper Cohen Bronfield about opportunity zones and how they impact the community and can benefit small developers. Thanks for listening to the Jumpstart Philly Real Estate Radio Show on Germantown Community Radio, WRGU 92.9 FM. I hope you're enjoying the discussion. Great. So, so you almost always use it. What, what difference could there be? Like, could there be multiple qualified opportunities and businesses under one fund or is it always just? Yeah. Okay. So you can have one fund owning multiple qualified opportunities and businesses, um, I have had one client that was able to make it work with a single tier structure. I strongly caution against doing it because most of the time it's not going to work. But that was a context where there was, um, he was acquiring raw land and quickly putting some houses on it. Um, The timing just worked out and he was not going to hold much cash in it. He was going to draw down on debt to finance the project. So he felt that he was able to manage the testing dates um, so that any time a testing date hit for the qualified opportunity fund, he just wasn't going to have any cash in the, in the fund. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. It was worth it and, to him then, to have the simpler structure. Right. Right. Um, and then, you know, there's only a and B on that chart there, but could there be multiple investors involved in, in Absolutely. one? Couple, couple, yeah. One? Okay. It has to be two or more. It sounded like, right. That's right. That's purely to avoid it being a disregarded entity. So once you have at least two, you can have hundreds. Um, Well, we don't want to have a publicly traded partnership, but (laughs) putting that issue aside, um, you can have a lot of investors. Cool. Um, And and I think, unless you have more to say about the the diagram there, I think this is a good point to to bring up the obvious question was, do you need a lawyer to do all this? Because this is a lot of... (laughs) Details and stipulations and and yes, if this, no, if that. Um, it sounds like it would be impossible to do without a lawyer. So maybe you can provide some insight there. <laughs> yeah, I think that, um, you know, there's a lot of information that's made available online. I think people spend a lot of time researching it. People attend, you know, seminars, webinars, conferences to listen to people talk about how to invest in QOZs and what the benefits are. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, I'm a real estate attorney. And if I didn't have Layla to work with, I mean, a lot of this was Greek to me. Um, mm-hmm. I might understand the codes regulation and understand the intent behind um, the regulations, but um, ultimately it really takes a village to make these types of projects work um, and work well. And I think that it's not just being able to work with an attorney, but also um, someone who has an acute understanding of tax and accounting. And this is a perfect intersection between like tax and real estate. Um, and I often find that um, the most successful projects utilize both your real estate attorney and either a tax lawyer and or an accountant. Um, I will say that it's difficult because 
Um, while these might be attractive for some investors, as you can tell, they're involved um, and they require attention. And um, we've even found since the beginning when Layla and I first started trying or working on QOZ deals when they were still brand new, um, as the regulations changed, you had to adapt and learn to craft new language to support the types of investments that these would carry. And we also had to be really um, careful to make sure that the work we were putting in place matched the regulations. Um, and so for that much, it can sometimes be seen as kind of an expensive enterprise to work with attorneys and accountants to do it. But um, this is truly a pennywise, pound foolish situation, especially if you're bringing in capital gain investment, um, failure to work with the right team might cause you to not um, see the benefits and otherwise uh, risk recapture of those of those values. Yeah, I, I would add that there are a lot of traps for the unwary here. Um, and there are even traps for the wary. But it is, you know, if you have the property earlier than you should, or if you have the property and you start out in a single member LLC and then add your second member too late, you you could prevent your entire project from qualifying just with very simple mistakes. If you have you know, 10 years down the line, if you're ready to dispose of your project and you have two projects in there and you dispose of one and you keep the other for a little bit longer. If you don't get your cash distributed out fast enough, then you end up harming your tax benefits for the second project that you've held longer, even though you've still complied with the intent of the program. You've, yeah, other than that, you've done everything right. Tough, right. tough luck. You didn't yeah. distribute your cash. I don't know how anybody who's not a tax lawyer is supposed to know these. I mean, the, the final regulation package was 500 and something pages long. Mm -hmm. The preamble to the regulation. So treasury regulations have typically a preamble and then they have the regulations and the preamble explains the regulations. The preamble didn't match the regulations. So there were things that were explained in the preamble that were inconsistent with what the regulations actually said. So, you know, good luck, but please be careful if you're trying to do it on your own. Um, I think also the benefit of bringing in a team of experts to support you on a project like this, um, you know, at the, at the outside, uh, the QOF, the fund <clears throat> itself needs to certify. There's a certification process for that. And while on its face, it's pretty straightforward. Um, as you move forward and you file returns, um, you really need to be working in step with your accountant to understand what that process will look like. And again, you know, with respect to any K-1 schedules for distributions, it's important to be, you know, working with people who understand that aspect of the business. Cool. And in particular, if you bring in outside investors and you mess up their QOZ benefits, you're going to, you're going to be really up <laughs> yeah. upset and mostly because they're upset. So you want, we want to be disclosing risks to them up front. So that's another uh, thing that lawyers can do to help protect you. Cool. So it sounds like the answer to that question is get a lawyer. <laughs> um, but but cool. So so we're we're moving right along here, and I think we're going to probably push the Q and A back another ten minutes. Uh, so just five of eight because we still have some some important stuff to cover. Um, but I want to shift gears, and we talked about what what makes an investor qualified and and what you know eligibility requirements the actual business that's employing the OZ needs. What about the project or the property? What what sorts of requirements uh, surround the, the a project and for it to be able to qualify as an OZ? Um, yeah, so I've I've sort of alluded to this earlier. The project has to um, either be substantially improved or the property uh, needs to be original use, and that's original use in the zone. So if you were doing outside of the real estate context, you could actually import used property into the, the zone, but in the real estate context, that's not usually feasible. Um, and you know, so if you if you have bare land, then the the building you put on it will be ori original use property. So then you don't have to worry about the substantial improvement tests um, and the land itself. So the there, in addition to the regulations that I mentioned, there was a revenue ruling, and the IRS came out and said, "Look, we know land can never be original use. It's been here for a really long time." Mm -hmm. um, so you don't have to meet the original use or the substantial improvement test for the land. Mm -hmm. 
if there is a building already on that land and you're not going to knock it down and put something new there, then you have to meet this substantial improvement test. So the requirement for that is that you have to more than double your basis in the building. So let's say you, you know, you buy land in a building for $100,000, you want to figure out what would I have paid for just the raw land and what is the building itself worth? You would allocate value between the two. And then the amount that you have to more than double is only the amount that's allocated to the building. So that was a, a nice gift from the IRS that you don't have to um, double the basis of the land as well when you're improving the building. I should also mention that you have to have purchased the property um, in 2018 or later. So um, if you already own real estate in the, the zone, there are things that we can do to try to get you some benefits, but it's a lot more complicated. Um, it's it's not intended for in, investors who are already um, sitting property. But if you're, if you had the property, especially if it was just raw land and you were going to put a building on it, there are things that we can do to make it work. Um, so those are, those are the main tests for what you have to do, you know, to make the asset a, a good asset within the QOZB. Um, you, I mentioned earlier, you can't have a triple net lease. You have to have an active trader business. Mm -hmm. um, you have to have your revenue coming, 50% of your revenue has to come from the active trade or business within the zone. That's less of a concern with real estate because where else is it going to come from? Um, intellectual property is similarly not a, a big um, issue for real estate. So that, that test that you have to use 40% of your intellectual property in that business doesn't have a lot of meaning for real estate. Um, there are some rules about inventory if you were looking to do, you know, some other type of business in the zone. Um, but, you know, what are what are some of those other types of businesses? You've mentioned that a few times. Um, obviously, you know, we're focused on real estate sure. tonight. So but. it can be, um, you know, like a retail business. It could be a restaurant. It cannot be what we call colloquially the sin businesses. So it can't be a place that is for um, the sale of alcohol, primarily for consumption off premises. So a bar is fine. A beer distributor is not. Mm -hmm. It can't be a hot tub facility, a massage parlor, a golf course, course yeah, a race track. Nice. Am I forgetting any other fun ones? Uh, I think you got to check the list. Yeah, there are some exclusions for sure. Um, but specifically in the, in the, you know, and, and maybe it's worth explaining some examples of projects that we've worked on that are in the OZ, um, in real estate. And a lot of them have been in the multifamily market. Um, we've also done some projects which are mixed use, which might have like a commercial or off like a commercial office space, um, or have some sort of mixed use between commercial office and retail or commercial retail and residential. And that's allowed, um, that's an interesting, um, it permits a lot of like adaptive reuse of existing um, properties while people are meeting those tests. I'm sure we have a lot of disappointed attendees tonight knowing they can't open their um, hot tub retail <laughs> with, with the energy, but. Well, it appears that you can have a marijuana distributor with no issue. So maybe just change your plans a little to a different sin business. <laughs> that happens to not be listed. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure that the, the um, hot tub business owners and the marijuana dispensary owners probably overlap a little bit. <laughs> yeah. It's also to note, it's, it's important to note also that you can't lease more than a de minimis amount of your space to one of those sin businesses. Gotcha. Um, cool. um, okay. So, so we're, we're not running short on time, but, but I think we should um, just move further on the conversation about how people in this call can, can utilize um, an OZ. You know, most people in this call are, are either, ha either haven't developed a property ever, or maybe they're on their first, second, third project, um, starting to move up and scale, you know, moving away from the single family row home renovation. Um, you know, wh where does the opportunity zone benefit affect a, a small scale real estate developer like the ones in this call? So um, that's a great question because uh, it seems the program seems a little bit lofty sometimes and maybe not approachable to everybody. And that's certainly been some feedback, obviously some criticisms 
a lot of these tax incentive or tax driven programs, which have been around for a long time, there were uh, precursors to this program that existed even 20 years prior. And, um, and, and the typical criticism is that most people can't gain the benefit. Most people don't either have the ability to access what the program has been created for, or might not have the information or the wherewithal to be able to get into it. Or don't have capital gains. Or don't have capital gain. And in this case, um, the, the great thing is that for individuals in the community who might be interested in taking advantage of QOZs, but perhaps don't have gain to, to contribute into a fund to, to go out and buy those properties. Um, one value is that in a lot of these census tracts, um, the property values have kind of in, have been inflated by the, the it because it's market driven. Um, and we see sort of a wave of, you might call it good capital, but you'll see like a wave of good capital come into communities that may need investment. Um, but the benefit here is that if you're already a property owner in one of these communities and your property is located in a census tract that matches the QOZ, it's very possible that the property value has increased um, over the last two years. Um, and it very well could continue to increase as the neighboring properties are also improved. Um, so there's value for you just driven in the equity in your own property. Um, there's also the potential that you could sell your property and make some money. Um, and maybe you just take that to roll into your next investment. And maybe it's not a QOZ. Maybe it's just, you know, acquiring a duplex or a triplex to try to start to drive capital for yourself and, and wealth creation that way. Um, also, the other thing where I think community members can get involved in QOZs is less about the money making, more about the place making. Um, QOZs are, you know, in some of these communities, people are really active with the developers um, and neighbors and community members should get involved in OZ development where they live. Um, so many of us live just a few miles or even directly in OZs. And um, you want to bring businesses and operators to the community where you live and work. And so this is a great way to like provide, um, you know, some have some feedback and help dictate what happens in the place that you live. Um, but I think the most important thing is to determine the best way to make what they call non-extractive OZ investments. And that's basically where value is created and shared among the people who live in the community. Um, and so with those types of blended investment strategies, the key is just to make your voice known, get to know the people who are doing business in your community and make sure um, different you know, stakeholders of your community have a, a, a place and something to say uh, with development as the neighborhoods are being sort of worked on and invested in. Yeah. Awesome. And if, if investors do have you know, gain and an interest, maybe gain from their first project and they wanna roll it into an opportunity zone project with you know, maybe they're going to a, a two family or three family dwelling, um, you know, even small projects can work and you don't know now what the appreciation will be in 10 years. So um, you keep your options open to be able to exclude that gain by setting it up. I mean, there's additional expense. You have to weigh the risk that you've, you've spent the additional money on attorneys and accounting fees and that maybe the property won't increase in value, but, um, but if it does, you'll be really glad that you don't have to pay taxes on it in 10 years. <laughs> right. Also, well, well, thanks for that answer, Jen, and, and the, the backup, Layla. That sounds, it, it sounds like um, it, it's the aspiration of Opportunity Zone is to get smaller scale level developers like involved and in, in really the, the main active part of it. Um, but it, it's hard because there's, there's barriers to entry, um, which hopefully we're breaking down some of them right now. Um, so, so my next question for you is, is um, and I know one for, for all levels of experience, um, experienced real estate developers, there's certain projects that just don't work out like by the numbers. And there's certain projects that are golden opportunities that are perfect. Um, would, would choosing to invest in a property with an opportunity zone, would that influence, you know, the, the success of a project? Is it, could it get you from a no to a yes? Um, That's another great question. And I would say, I mean, frankly, Layla, probably what nine times out of 10, a client is calling us with that exact sort mm -hmm. of, question. We have a lot of clients who come to us with a potential QOZ investment and it's like sometimes they're square peg round hole situations. But, um, you know, and, and Layla and I, we both say this, I know she's heard me say it a lot of times, but these deals at the end of the day need to make dollars and cents. If the project does not work, right? If you don't make, I mean, at the end of the day, investment 
there's money to be made. Um, there's opportunity, pun intended, to be gained. If, if you're not making money on the investment, you have to question whether or not the investment was worth it. Mm-hmm. Um, now, of course, there's people who invest in, in projects because they feel good or it's in a place that they care about or it's something that they wanted to do. But um, with respect to like driving benefit and gain, we often find um, that clients have looked at deals and if they work them up and build out their pro forma and stress them under normal market stressors, like reduced tenancy, reduced occupancy and commercial retail spaces, reduction in per square foot rent. Um, if you if you test them and stress them, the question is, does it still work? And just because the property is located in an OZ, at least in my opinion, does not necessarily always take you from a, a no to a yes. Gotcha. But it could sometimes. So just the the tax benefits are significant and you will be able to, this is, you know, property that you'll be able to depreciate during the time that you're holding it. And when you sell it after 10 years, you don't have to recapture that, that gain. So you got ordinary deductions over the life of, or your holding of that property, and then you're going to sell it. And even if even if you sold it for the same amount that you bought it for, you would normally have gain because of that depreciation you took, and now you don't. So you got a tax benefit that you never had to pay for. Right. So you really have to run the numbers. I, I mean, I don't run the numbers. I have an accountant run the numbers usually. Um, and, and think about whether it works. I mean, one of the problems is, you know, figuring out whether the project works costs money. Um, but it's, critical when you're you're deciding whether to make a significant investment um, in, the, in a project but awesome thanks Layla and, and thank you Jen um, so so we're, I'm seeing plenty of questions come in here so I want to make sure we have enough time for that but the last thing I do want to talk about um, uh, and, and I, I hate to end this on more of a, a somber or or disappointing note but I do want to talk about the the downsides of OZ um, you know we talked about all these great benefits um, especially if you're qualified and the project works out for you um, but you know um, that we, it's important to address the equitable nature of an OZ and like how it could not necessarily be good for a neighborhood. And I think we've already kind of gone through those where it's missed the mark on providing opportunity for um, not necessarily the, the community. Um, you know, I'm sure we could go on and on about, about into the weeds of it, but um, from a, from a bird, like a bird's eye view, what are some of the, the downsides of an OZ? Like um, I, I know, like you already said, how complex it is and, and how there's that information gap between, you know, some people in this call and, and the people who are investing in it. So, so what is, how do OZs work into like a greater concept of, of city development and, and like where, where does it fall short sometimes? Sorry, that was a super long-winded question, but I, th- I do think it is important to address. No, it's, a, it's a, again, a good question. Um, and I think we sort of touched on it a little bit earlier. Um, but what we've often found, again, is that you know, I hate to say it, but unfortunately people approach these things with sort of the greed is good mentality. So the key is how do we break that and, or how do we become an active participant in the conversation? So to make um, QOZ investment work as part of a community, um, because of the location of some of these census tracts, um, both to access for transit oriented development, access to just additional development that's already been booming um, in the prior 10 years, it's not necessarily always equitable mm-hmm. and um, it's not always affordable and achievable by, you know, all people who might be interested in making real estate investment mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and to, to find that and to try to humanize it and make it accessible. Again, the most important thing is to create an open conversation with developers in the community and to allow stakeholders to have a place. And I think that, you know, if we're focused here on the city of Philadelphia, I think we've succeeded in some places. I think we have not succeeded in others. Mm -hmm. I think that there are some developers who are good driven, who are focused focused in on development that makes it a positive impact. Mm -hmm. Um, But QOZs have tended to be conflated with this concept of impact investment and they're not the same. Mm -hmm. Um, And they shouldn't be considered the same, Um, but we can find them working together sometimes in tandem. Mm-hmm. And I would also say um, that to sort of counter the, the again, the greed is good kind mm-hmm. of approach, um, we do see some public-private partnerships coming into the market, which allow either they're going to operate in those spaces 
or um, they are able to contribute, you know, property or we're able to work on transactions where those, those sort of um, good natures are coming together with developers. And, and hopefully that helps to sort of guide this program to provide additional um, positive investment benefit to communities. Uh, I think that it's, it's difficult because the market, again, this is a market driven, you know, regulation. And while the investments are focused in or were identified to be focused in on distressed communities, um, it kind of excludes the individuals who don't have the gain. Mm -hmm. So um, I think we, we try to find solutions that we can be um, accessible to all people in the community. Totally. Yeah. And I appreciate your perspective on that, Jen. And I think you said it earlier, but the, the, one of the biggest ways that you can like benefit from it is just getting involved in the conversation and like, you know, making your voice heard about what, what benefits you're not seeing or, or what downfalls you're seeing. Like, um, it, it, the problem doesn't go away unless you, you talk about it. So, yeah, so and I think that it's important also, I mean, I'm sure, you know, the, the folks that are tuned in to this uh, mm-hmm. webinar understand that, um, you know, access to your elected officials, council people, and, and even people a little bit higher up going all the way into like the department of community and economic development. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't get in touch with them, they don't know what you need. And so this should be sort of like a reminder that if you see it's, you know, if you want to see something change, you can be a part of it. Um, and real estate's a really incredible way to have an impact on your built environment. That concludes my conversation with Jen Tintinfass and Leila Vaughn from Royer Cooper Cohen Bronfield about opportunity zones and how they can impact the community and benefit small developers. Next week, I'll be speaking with Jaime Rodriguez, who is the Director of Construction for Philly Office Retail and Draw Inspector for Jumpstart Germantown, about the draw request process and how it works. The interviews on this program are recorded during Jumpstart Germantown's weekly Jumpinar series, which takes place via Zoom webinar every Monday night at 7 p.m. If you'd like to participate in the live Q&A with our guests, be sure to head to jumpstartgermantown.com events and register for next week's Jumpinar. And if you're interested in starting a Jumpstart program in your own community, you can visit gojumpstart.org and see our how-to guide and open source training workbook. Thanks so much for listening to the Jumpstart Philly Real Estate Radio Show on Germantown Community Radio, WRGU 92.9 FM. And be sure to tune in next week.